Good morning, Cornerstone. Romans chapter 14, verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you judge your brother or your sister? And this is a continuation from last week where Paul began to instruct us that we should not judge one another based upon our own opinions. The context of Paul's question here is that of opinion and not regarding truth. He could have just as easily asked the question, why do you seek to hold your brother or your sister to your own personal standard? Because that's what he's talking about. Eating meat and observing days and so on. Why do you judge your brother or your sister just because their opinion differs from your own? Every opinion is based on experience, education, and upbringing. And for the believer, every opinion is based on personal experience, education, upbringing, and sometimes a little bit of the Bible, but it's still just an opinion. An opinion is not truth. Opinion is personal preference, personal principles that may be derived in part from the scripture, but it's also derived from other sources. Why do you treat your brother or your sister, Paul asks, with contempt? Just because he chooses to, chooses not to pattern his life according to your personal perspective. Why? What is your reason? Because there has to be a reason why you think you have the final word over your brother's life and over your brother's affairs. Why do you do that? And sometimes I would hope that the reason that we judge our brother and our sister based upon our own personal opinion is because we observe something that our brother or sister is doing and we can see that what they're doing can all too easily fall into sin and so we feel the need to warn them. That would be a good reason. I got an email from someone about a young Christian man who's attending Chicago public schools. And he and his parents have sued the school system because it is mandatory in their school that every student has to participate in transcendental meditation. It's a rule, it's a policy for whatever the reason. And so the student and his parents sued because transcendental med meditation in their book is sin. And the school has no right to demand their child participate against his own beliefs. If they're like most other believers, anything dealing with meditation is automatically taboo. It's off limits. It's that Eastern mysticism stuff. No matter the purpose, no matter the focus, meditation is in their book, sin. 
Now I, as you all probably know by now, I am a contemplative. I've been a contemplative for many years. And I myself have had personal experience with believers who have warned me, contemplation, Calvin, is sin. But whenever I ask them to provide me scripture to confirm their assertion, I've always been met with contempt. Because they don't know why they're against it. They only know that it makes them feel very uncomfortable. And my reply is always the same. If it makes you feel uncomfortable, I advise you not to do it. But it is not wise to judge my actions based on your conception of what is right and what is wrong. And if I'm wrong, you don't need to worry. If it turns out in the end that you were right and I am wrong, and contemplation is sin, then God will judge. That's what Paul says. We will all stand before God's judgment seat. We will all, each of us, be examined by God, both in sins great and in sins small. You do know that God measures sin on a spectrum, don't you? You do know that there are great sins and that there are small sins. We all know that, right? Maybe we don't. First John chapter five and verse 16 says this. If anyone sees his brother or sister committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. For the apostle John says, there is sin that leads to death. I am not saying you should ask about that. In other words, he's saying, if your brother is committing a minor sin, you don't need to go and try to correct him. If someone is doing something that in your opinion is sin, John says you should just pray to God for that person and God will give them life for people who commit sins that are not leading to death. But then he says there is a sin that leads to death and for those sins I'm not saying you should just pray for him then. You should confront your brother or your sister if it is clearly sin. But if it's just your opinion, just pray about it and keep it to yourself. There is a sin that does not lead to death. In other words, there are some sins which are plainly spelled out in Scripture. And there are other, other sins that are not so plainly spelled out in Scripture, but they can be deduced from the text. But not all of us have the same reasoning. Not all of us have the same level of education or knowledge. And therefore, we may not always deduce the exact same lessons from the text. We may not always draw the same conclusion. So what John advises us in 1 John chapter 5, 16, is that we should not major on the minors. We should not be so meticulous in our examination of our brother and of our sister to the point that we hold her in contempt about even the smallest sin or in matters that are not actual sins, but just sin to me. Because if you do not have a strong and a solid scripture to support your accusation, then you are judging them based on your own opinion. 
But as Paul says, God will judge each of us for sins great and for sins small. He says, verse 11, as it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. We can deduce from, from the way Paul declares this that to judge someone is to demand that they bow before you. To judge someone is to demand that your brother or your sister acknowledge your personal principles as binding on their lives. And to do so, to judge in this way is not a small sin. To appraise my sister according to my personal perspectives, my personal principles, is to take God down from his throne and to insert myself in his stead. Verse 12, but each of us, Paul says, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And in giving our account, we will not only explain our actions to God, but God will also examine our intention. And this is what my brother, this is what my accuser cannot do. He cannot judge my intention. God will not only judge our actions, but God will look beneath to observe our intent and our knowledge and our perspective as well as our understanding. Then God will find us either innocent or guilty based on his own righteous evaluation. Only God can do that. Only God can see the heart. Only God can see beyond the surface. Therefore, since only God can do that, therefore, verse 13, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Let us stop shaming one another, ridiculing and speaking ill of one another. Let us stop ascribing sin to one another based on our own evaluation because we only know in part. And the only sins that we can know for certain are plainly spelled out in Scripture. So let us not hold our brother to our personal standard. Instead, Paul says, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or any obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. This is exactly what we do when we demand more of our sister than God has demanded of them. We put a stumbling block in the, their way. We, we place obstacles in their way. We make their walk with Jesus Christ much more difficult and much more complicated and much more distasteful than it has to be. We make their walk with Jesus Christ much less joyous. We make ourselves a burden to our brothers and sisters and we can also cause them to fall away because of our constant nagging, our constant nitpicking over things that are neither here nor there in God's economy. For I am convinced, Paul says, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean of itself. I like that. I am persuaded, I am convinced, Paul says, that nothing is unclean in itself. 
It's a very broad assertion he makes right there. Nothing is profane. Nothing is defiled in itself. I knew a young man who came to Jesus Christ and he used to be a devil worshiper. And he came to a, a rehabilitation a program that we were running out of a church in Indiana. He had given his life to Jesus Christ and he had that five point star tattoo on his shoulder. It was a big star. And he came to Jesus Christ but he didn't want to remove his tattoo. Imagine that for a moment now. Don't just listen to the story, but put yourself in the situation. This brother has come to Christ, and on his shoulder, he has a satanic symbol with the letters on it. And he's saying, there's no need to remove my symbol. The church became very judgmental of him. People were afraid of him. After six or seven months, they began asking him the question, why haven't you removed that tattoo from your arm? You must still have some dealings with that false religion. You can't claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and keep that tattoo. Another woman was always quoting Confucius. And she often quoted Buddha in our meetings. She would say things that Buddha supposedly said. People were so unhappy and uncomfortable with her that a believer would be quoting someone like Buddha and they judged her and they told her it was sin to do that. But Paul, being a mature believer, Paul understood that nothing is unclean in itself. A tattoo of a star is not unclean in itself. We ascribe certain power and we lend definition to certain forms, to certain structures. And this makes them unclean to us, but it doesn't make it unclean in itself. A tattoo is merely paint under your skin. That's all it is. And if the Buddha said something that aligns with scripture, it is not off limits to quote, to be quoted by a believer. But we judge one another over matters like these. Why? Because we understand the world the same way the world understands itself. If the world says that this star symbolizes devil worship, then we accept that it means devil worship. But truthfully, truthfully, honestly, the star has no power at all. And if the person wearing the tattoo has given their life to Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter whether they keep that star or remove that star. The star has no meaning. The star has no power. Nothing is unclean in itself. That's for mature believers. Everybody can't drink from that, from that cup. Nothing is unclean in itself. It is only unclean if the person wearing the symbol has sinful intention. Nothing is unclean in itself, Paul says. But if anyone regards something as being unclean, then for that person, not for everybody, but for that person, it is unclean. That is their opinion to which they have a right. If the star is unclean to you, then you should not get that star tattooed on your body. If it's unclean to you, then you should stay away from it. 
You should not get that star tattooed on your body, but neither should you demand your brother to not get that star painted on his body. Nothing is actually unclean in itself. It is only unclean to you if you deem it to be unclean. This is the truth. But even though the stronger sister may know this is the truth, still she should not flaunt her liberty before those who are of weaker faith. Paul says, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat or because of your tattoo or because you quoted the Buddha, if your brother or your sister is distressed by your actions, then you are no longer acting in love. If your tattoo is causing your brother or your sister to feel uncomfortable, but you refuse to at least cover it up. You are no longer acting out of love. But look, I've had this tattoo since I was 15 years old. I'm accustomed to having this tattoo. And since it actually doesn't symbolize anything good or bad, you shouldn't have a problem removing it then. If it means nothing, then you should not have a problem taking it off of your arm then. If it's really not important, if it really doesn't have power, you should be able and willing to take the tattoo off. We, 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 we see here that this principle that Paul is putting forward cuts both ways. The person who judges me for having a tattoo is ascribing power to my paint. But if I love that paint too much, too much that I can't remove it, then I am ascribing power to the symbol as well. And we're both acting out of flawed opinion and neither of us is acting out of love. The tattoo is insignificant in God's economy. If I went today to a Muslim mosque and decided I was going to sit there and pray and a believer saw me entering into a Muslim mosque, they would accuse me of all sorts of things because they see the symbol of a mosque as being sinful. And my entering, oh, that's just sin. Calvin is completely out of order, but Calvin knows that the building is not unclean in itself. I can pray anywhere, but the weaker saint can't comprehend that. And so I have to be careful, not for my own sake, but for the sake of the person who is weaker in faith. The tattoo is insignificant in God's economy. And I should not love my tattoo more than I love my brother in Christ. And my brother in Christ should not fear my tattoo more than he loves me. It cuts both ways. And the question becomes, what happens if we all, both the weak and the strong, what happens if we all have this loving disposition? When we all act in love toward one another, the weaker saint sees my tattoo, but she never mentions it to me. Even though my tattoo makes her feel uncomfortable, she withholds judgment. And in the meantime, I may have my tattoo removed because I am sensitive to the discomfort that it's causing my sister. That's what happens. So that it is not a matter of who is right and who is wrong. The ultimate question becomes, how much do I love my sister? 
How much am I willing to forego for the sake of my brother? And how willing am I to inconvenience myself so that she can feel comfortable? That becomes the greater question. Paul says, listen, do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ has died. Do not cause your brother to fall away from the fellowship because you have to have your way. Do not agitate your sister by flaunting your freedoms in her face. I know and you know that the tattoo is nothing. But if it really upsets your sister and if she genuinely believes that such a symbol dishonors God and dishonors the church, you, should very, you could very well cause her to run away from the assembly, to fall away. Why would you do that over a tattoo? I know it's insignificant, but if it's really insignificant to you, you should be willing and able to give it up for the sake of saving your sister, for the sake of ensuring the comfort of your brothers and your sisters. Your tattoo is not that serious. Your tattoo is not that important, or at least it's not as important as your brother. Verse 16, therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. As much as you can, and for the sake of keeping the peace, do your best to accommodate the sensibilities of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do your best to foster a peaceful and quiet environment wherein each of us can grow and thrive as much as you can. This is a mission for all believers, that we should all strive to foster an environment devoid of superstitions and taboos. But we should also strive to foster an environment devoid of unnecessary conflict and unnecessary discomfort to our brothers and sisters. This is somewhat of a nuanced text and a nuanced sermon, but it has to be because this is a nuanced topic. And there's a perfect example of this that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul deduces from nature and from scripture that a man should pray with his head uncovered, but a woman should pray with her head covered. This was Paul's rule in all of his churches. These are Paul's opinions on the matter of head covering. And Paul sincerely believes that praying in this way brings the most honor and glory to God. He believes that. And that is the policy in his churches. But then Paul turns around in 1 Corinthians 11 and 16 and says this. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor have the churches of God. Look at how he did that. He makes this long argument based on nature and based upon scripture that it is good for a man to pray with his head uncovered and for a woman to pray with her head covered. But then he says, but if anyone wants to argue about it, please don't die on that hill because it's really just my opinion. I think it's right, I think it's good, but I can't prove it by the text. If anyone wants to disagree with me in this matter, just tell them we don't, we don't even have that kind of a custom in our church. 
Don't worry about it. It is not worth dying over. If a woman, if a man refuses to follow these edicts as I have outlined them to you, if a person takes umbrage to my determination in the matter of head covering, then never mind. Let's not fight over it. Let's not upset the church in defense of our subjective views on matters that are neither here nor there. And I have no doubt that what Paul expects is that those who adhere to his rule about head covering will not argue with those who do not follow his rule, but that those who know that there is no biblical support for his rule will fall in line as they seek to foster a peaceful environment that accommodates the ethical needs of the weaker saints. Yeah. For the kingdom of God, Paul says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of head covering versus no head covering. It's not a matter of tattoo versus no tattoo. No, the kingdom of God, Paul says, is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. But when my actions tempt my sister to act in an unrighteous manner when she judges me, when my actions cause disturbance in the church, when my actions antagonize fellow believers, then my actions are not in alignment with God's desire for his church. My actions are not in alignment with the spirit of love. God's house is to be a house of peace and a house of prayer where everyone feels comfortable where each seeks to accommodate the sensibilities of the other. And Paul says when we do this, anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Anyone who acts in such a loving manner as to postpone their own liberty in order to accommodate the conscientious needs of a fellow believer, this person pleases God. And pleasing God is of utmost importance. Pleasing God is more important than my need to exercise my own liberty, my own freedom. And anyone who acts in such a loving manner as to suspend their own personal liberty so that another believer can feel comfortable, will gain the approval of the group as well because that attitude contributes to a peaceful environment. Verse 19, therefore, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Let us make every effort this caveat is in line with Paul's previous statement that as much as depends on you, follow peace. Do your best, Paul is saying, do your best to accommodate the sensibilities of your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Do your best, put forth your best effort. But Paul also understands that there will be limits to how far you're able to go. So he says, Put forth every effort. Do as much as you can to provide these compassionate accommodations. At least try. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. 
to bring it closer to home, Paul is saying that the work of God should be your highest priority over and above your need to exercise your personal liberty. The work of God, which is the saving and sanctifying of souls, should be more important to you than your right to a stake, to a tattoo, to anything else. God's mission comes first. All food is clean, Paul says. All food is clean. All tattoos are clean, as long as they don't depict anything that's sinful. All tattoos are clean. But it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble, that causes someone else to take conscientious offense. For in Paul's estimation, it is better not to eat meat. It is better not to drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, Keep between yourself and God. You don't need to flaunt your liberty before men. You should not intentionally cause your faith to be brought into question. You should not mock, you should not irritate your brother or your sister on purpose just to demonstrate that you are free. Whatever you believe to be true concerning things that are not clearly spelled out in Scripture, keep it between you and your God. You don't need to act on it, especially in front of people who may take offense. Some believers, for example, enjoy drinking wine. There are plenty of believers who believe that drinking wine is the cardinal sin. So the brother who knows that drinking wine is not a sin, even though he knows that he is free to drink wine, that brother still should not drink wine in the presence of the one who considers it to be sin. Keep it to yourself and your God, Paul says, because your brother's conscience is more precious than your glass of Chablis. Blessed is the one, Paul says, blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. Now he puts a serious, this is a serious caveat right here. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. In other words, you will be most happy if you do not internalize your brother's opinions about your actions. This could be a sermon all by itself, a sermon on boundaries. You will be most happy if you do not internalize your brother's opinions about your actions. You will be most happy if you maintain your conscientious boundaries and not allow another believer to put you into their conscious mold. That says a lot. Paul is saying this is not a game. And you should not interpret Paul's admonitions in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 23. You should not interpret this to mean that you have to believe about yourself or about your actions what, what, what another believer says you should believe. We don't want to misunderstand Paul to be saying that you have to adhere to your sister's conscience, that you have to, to adhere to your brother's conscience. Do not internalize another man's conscience. 
Do not imbibe another person's view as to what is right and what is wrong. Even though you're going through the motions to, to make them feel more comfortable, to accommodate their, their, their sensibilities, don't internalize it. Just because she thinks it's wrong doesn't mean it's wrong. And what you're doing is simply a matter of accommodation. Not necessarily because what she believes is true. You are your own person. You may alter your actions out of love for your, for your brother, for your sister, but not out of a sense of guilt and not out of a sense of shame. Because she too, just like you, she will appear before God. And it may turn out that she's wrong. It may turn out that she is reprimanded by God for inconveniencing you, for putting unnecessary obstacles in your way. She could be wrong. It is only your role to, as best you can, accommodate her conscience for her sake, not for yours. But, Paul concludes, whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat. Because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. If my sister tells me that having a tattoo is sin, and I second-guess myself and come to agree with her, I should have the tattoo removed. If my sister complains that my drinking wine is a sin, and I am uncertain that it's not a sin, I should refrain from drinking wine. If I have any doubt that my actions are not in alignment with the permissive will of God, then I just shouldn't do it. Because anything that I do that is not from faith in God is sin. And I will be judged according to what God has clearly spelled out as sin. But I will also be judged according to what I myself has deemed to be sin. Why is that? Because if I think it's sin and I do it anyway, then my intention was to disobey God. And such an intention is by definition sin. This is a very interesting, very interesting text. And one that we have to tiptoe through and not just run through it because the principles are so nuanced. And the misunderstanding of these principles can cause us to be in bondage to one another. You can imagine how hectic it would be in a church if everybody started running around preaching their opinions and demanding that you fall in line with my opinion because the Bible says that you should accommodate my conscience. Imagine how messy that would be. So Paul gives a lot of balance and nuance there. Don't take this to the extreme where other people are controlling your life. But out of love, be willing to accommodate the conscience sensibilities of your weaker brother, of your weaker sister, as much as you can. <laughs> as much as you can. And the entire context that we're talking about here is how to keep peace among the brothers and sisters. That's what we're really talking about, how to foster an environment of peace where there is as little offense as possible, where nobody is upsetting the apple cart on purpose, 
where we're being gentle with one another and trying to ensure that you are comfortable and you are comfortable and you are comfortable because when we're comfortable, when we're at peace, then we can grow. But where there is no peace, there will be very little growth and God's will will not be done. And so even though sometimes it's difficult for stronger believers, for more mature believers, it's difficult sometimes uh, to work with our weaker brothers and sisters because of taboos and fears and all kinds of phobias and, and superstitions. It's inconvenient, but it's necessary so that they can be comfortable, so that they can grow. And prayerfully, once they grow, they'll come to realize that what they believe, their opinion is incorrect, and they'll set us free to exercise our complete liberty with one another. I'll tell you a secret. This is very often why mature believers don't do a lot of hanging out with church people because they don't want to be under the bondage of being judged by immature Christians for what they do or what they say or how they act. They already know you have all of these taboos and superstitions and so sometimes mature believers stay away from the pack. But Paul told us last week that we should not stay away from the pack. We should actually join with those weaker saints and bring them along as our companions to inconvenience ourselves, to be up under their spotlight of their opinion. Do it for their sake to help them to grow and to mature and to develop and hopefully one day to come into the knowledge of the truth that nothing is unclean in and of itself. And your opinion may be good for you, it is good for you, your conscience is good for you, but your conscience has no binding on another person. And in this way, brothers and sisters, we set one another free. Uh-oh, this is about to become a whole different sermon. It's not gonna become, I'm gonna stop it right here. We set one another free. There is nothing worse than being surrounded by a group of believers that hold one another hostage, in bondage, tiptoeing around one another like we're all on eggshells. I can't say this, I can't offend there, I can't. That is such an uncomfortable and unhealthy environment. I know many churches like that. Our job, what Paul is saying, our obligation and responsibility is, is to produce and, and to contribute to an environment of peacefulness. To let one another go, to set one another free, to enjoy this liberty that we have in Jesus Christ. Because there's nothing worse than walking this walk with Jesus Christ and being unhappy all the way. It's difficult enough for us in this world in this world, we have persecution. In this world, we have suffering and struggling. We should not come to the church and be placed in bondage by someone else's opinion. Let's set one another free and foster an environment of peace. Let's pray. Father God, you said in your word that it is for freedom that you have set us free. We thank you for the liberty, for the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray, Lord God, that you'll give us wisdom so that we will know how to exercise our liberty and our freedom in such a way that it does not cause conflict and confusion in your church. Give us hearts of love and compassion for one another. Give us hearts that always desire to see the best 
and the most comfort for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us not to be abrasive and offensive to one another. Help us to grow in your grace, edified by your word and by your spirit until we all come into the mature form of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for your glory. Amen.